0: So here's a paradox. Um, I didn't come up with this myself. I got it from my husband. You might think that honesty is a kind of terminal norm of communication. So, like, you should just hold up your communication to the standard of it's being honest, which is to say, being as truthful as you can. Um, that's one horn of the dilemma. The other horn is that every kind of communi- every case of communication. In addition to being a case of speech, it's also a case of action, right? Right. So every act of communication, you're doing something. And there's only one terminal norm of action, which is do what's good. Right. right. Yes. A- accomplish what's good. Exactly. And, um, you know, if we accept the second horn, we have to say, you know, be honest if it happens to be good. Yes, exactly. Right? Um, but otherwise, don't be honest. and so. How can... So what's your solution to this puzzle?
1: I will frame this in the context of the concept of norms. Okay. That is, I will say, you know, typically we each just have a complicated set of things we want, some of which we can articulate and some of which we can't. Other people have other things they want, some of which they can articulate and some of which they can't. And we often find that we are in conflict with each other and... Unless we coordinate, these conflicts will be destructive. And so we often adopt norms as a way to adjudicate these conflicts to make us all better off. Sometimes we embody these norms in laws and we make them more formal, but before there were laws, there were norms. So a norm is a description of a feature of behavior that you should or shouldn't be doing. That is not just a good thing or bad thing, but it's a good or bad thing that we choose together to call a norm and to celebrate or denigrate and that we are going to go to some degree to promote this norm by praising the people who do the good thing or criticizing the people who do the bad thing and that's what a norm is and being honest is a norm
0: what about the other side Um, doing good is that also a norm
1: it's more than a norm it's more what we each might want to do if we were feeling especially generous it's also maybe the goal of the norm system to get people to do that but the key idea might be that we can't just set up a norm where we say each of us should just do what we can to just make everybody better off that in some sense that would be the ideal norm we just say everybody should just do what they can sacrifice sometimes personally if it will help us all together and we can define this altogether goal And That would be the ideal norm, but it's hard to enforce Because it's hard to tell in any one person in action whether what they're doing is in fact Helping us all and so what we do is we make a compromise or trade-off where we choose Rules of thumb that are easier to identify whether you did or didn't follow the rule of thumb So that we can then praise or criticize you for following that And we choose those rules sets that on average We think we're all better off if we have the rule than if we don't have the rule But we know, you know, it's not always going to be the right thing for our goals to follow the rule, and that's just a
0: cost. So I hear you as just grabbing one of the horns of the dilemma, which is to say, well, there's this, I mean, in a way there's this norm, um, which is like a heuristic, right? For doing good. It's more than a
1: heuristic. It's a collectively enforced heuristic. We're going to make you follow this heuristic, even if you don't think it's the right thing to do.
0: Right. Um, But then there's the actual goal of the whole norm system, right? Right. Which is like doing, you know, well, doing good for everyone, including oneself. Um, And so, in effect, you you think like, look, the second thing is the thing that's really valuable in the end, but we can't um, sort of enforce that uh, and enforce coordination around it. And we enforce coordination around it by way of these um, collective and enforced heuristics, um, that um, you know, like, are going to uh, achieve more good, even though, if in a given case, they might exactly. achieve less good. So, you suppose you know you're in one of those cases, right? Suppose yes. you're you're in a case where, um, where at least you believe right. that you can do more good by being dishonest than by being honest. Um, and that calculation includes any penalty you think you're likely That's to face for dishonesty, exactly. What do you think you should do?
1: Well, so the easy, so these rules of thumb tend to have a number of standard exceptions. Um, for example, one of the exceptions is if you can convince us that, in fact, clearly we're all better off if you make this exception, then we allow that exception. For example, we might say, Usually we can't tell, that's why we have these rules, but if in this case you can show us, and we are convinced that we're all better off here, then yes, we will allow the exception.
0: Of course, if you could actually convince the person, you wouldn't have to be dishonest.
1: Right. Well, that seems somewhat similar. So maybe there's a third party I'm being dishonest okay. to, for example. Okay, okay. So, you know, the classic, the Nazis come to the door, are you hiding one? No, I'm not hiding one, but I'm right. really hiding someone, right? right? So that's a classic, you know, reason why you might want to lie and be dishonest, right? Right. Uh, so we might Expect that some audience when they hear about this later on they will they will praise your actions They're criticizing. They'll say obviously. Yes, we all agree that in this sort of situation you should have been dishonest that that was fine Uh, But what if you don't think you can convince other people? Well now yes, as as you alluded you'd have to do this calculation. Well um, if I do the good thing Then and other people find out I mean they, they might not but if they do they might punish me and sanction me through my reputation including and that will have costs not just to me But to everyone in the sense that I might say lose my reputation for being honest and a good person And then I might be listened to less in the future and be Taken less seriously and that would be a cost not just for me, but for other people. So I'd run away those costs. Yeah but Yes, I would think if you I mean it also matters just how much you care about other people and I'm gonna take that as some feature of you That's not obvious so I say all of us care about other people to some degree. We care about ourselves a bit more, but weigh together in this situation how much you do care about other people and how much you care about yourself. And putting that together, if it if the net effect is positive from you, say telling the lying in this case then,
0: yeah, you should. It's weird to me that you, you're you giving me a normative assessment of what you should do, but you want to take in as fixed how much I value other people, which might be very little, right? Um, yes. Instead of saying, like, well, step one, you should value other people a lot, and now mm-hmm. I'll tell you what you should do, given that you should yes. value other people yes. a lot. So why are you inclined to... Um, kind of insert the normativity only in that spot, but not in like like presumably um, you have views about how much I should right. value other people. Okay,
1: so you've given me the opening here to do a little dealism explanation. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the answer to your question. Um, so many people, even most people, are very comfortable often talking in moral terms. And so I feel I should learn to talk in those terms too. <laughs> but I don't necessarily always think in those terms. And so I have a translation in my head between the terms I would rather think in terms of and the terms people more often talk in terms of. So I'm an economist, for example, (laughs) and economists have a simple standard way we evaluate policies called economic welfare. And it's a simple function of different people's preferences. And philosophers, sometimes like yourself, though I don't know if you in particular ever did criticize economists by saying that uh, we are neglecting a lot of complexity in moral analysis. Our simple proxy for what's good is way too simple, and it doesn't include a whole bunch of other important things. And so this is a common criticism of economic analysis. And of course it's claiming that you know, morality is complicated and there is no simple summary and you'll have to dive into this deep literature if you want to be able to say what's moral, uh, which of course gets in the way our attempts to do a lot of broad ambitious analysis with relatively simple tools. Okay, so having said all that, uh, I would say an important role that i can play as an economist and that economists can play in the world is to suggest to people deals they can make so if there's a legislature trying to pass a bill or a board of directors trying to make a decision about a firm or a church trying to wrestle with the key controversy um, basically they will be looking to come up with a deal that they can enough of them can get behind and uh, when they do that, they each have their different preferences, which include their concept of morality and how much they're committed to it and, and, and its realization in this context. But fundamentally, they have preferences, i.e. what they would choose in various given various options. And standard economic tools of welfare analysis are exactly well-suited to suggest deals that they might all be willing to adopt. And we economists, therefore, using our standard welfare analysis in this sort of context, are telling people, consider the following deals as things that you might all prefer over other potential deals. And that's what I think of doing in many of these contexts, is thinking about what would be the deal. So in that context, I have to take any one person's degree of altruism as a given, I have to say, this person cares about other people a lot, that person doesn't, and when I'm thinking about deals they could make together, I have to take that as a given and then suggest what deals would be. So that's the context in which, even about myself, I might say, well, depending on how much I care about other people. Now, in this context, moral persuasion is certainly allowed. (sighs) That is, you know, when people get together, they will be trying to persuade each other to have different moral attitudes and to perhaps subtly announce that If you violate their moral standards, they will be complaining to some audience, et cetera. So there'll be moral persuasion. And you could even, in the context of seeing the deal we might propose, tell people that violates a moral principle and that they should change their preferences in context of seeing the consequences of their preferences acted out in this context. That's all fine and legitimate, but nevertheless, given any set of people and the current moral positions they have, and their current preferences, there is a set of deals that's the, what we call the Pareto Frontier, the maximum best deals they could all get given that other people have different preferences and that's what economists do, we offer that set of preferences.
0: So is the reason why you're inclined to offer these deals to these people, one of whom may happen to be yourself, is that you just happen to have a brief preference for people making deals and so that you're satisfying that preference of yours by offering them these deals?
1: Well. Um, I think the world is better off when they can find better deals. That is, all else equal. A world of people who make bad deals is a worse-off world. That is, they're all getting less than they could from their point of view. So, I think, on average, the world's better off. Now, in any one case, I might think that a particular deal is bad for the world.
0: But the fact that you think the world is better off if people make deals, that by itself would motivate you. You have you would have to have a preference for the world being better off, right? Someone, yeah, Some sure. nasty person might have a preference for right. the world being worse off. All else equal.
1: But again, that doesn't make me a full altruist. I still might put more weight on myself relative to the rest of the world.
0: Right. So you sometimes might not <laughs> offer deals, even when you see them, because you see more advantage to yourself in not offering the deal. If
1: there were no cost to making exceptions. Right. So this is related to the exceptions mm-hmm. to norms we talked about before, mm-hmm. right? So... I want to take a simple stance to the world. I want to say I'm an economist and when I put my economics hat on, this is what I will do for you. Mm -hmm. And the more I have to explain, accept.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And the more that's complicated, the harder that stance will be to take.
0: And is the wanting to take a simple stance, is that a brute preference?
1: No, that's part of being able to be an expert in the world. So, uh, you know, if there are many different kinds of experts, that for each kind of expert, that kind of expert is more palatable, more, more attractive if they present themselves in a simple, understandable way as the kind of advice that will give.
0: Is that because the expert, in some sense, has to convey to the non-expert information that the, in some sense, the non-expert is not in a position to evaluate, so that the expert has to be able to um, almost have like a cloak of simplicity?
1: Well, it's more that uh, you might help use different experts to check on each other. Uh huh. So, so for example, if a doctors might present themselves to you, as I think they do, mm-hmm. as the advice I will give you will be the thing that promotes your health, taking someone into account cost. Uh huh. Okay, but I'm not trying to like get you to marry my daughter or something, right? <laughs> like that's illegitimate as a thing a doctor would be doing with mm-hmm. their advice, mm-hmm. right? And so, if in fact some other doctor saw them recommending that you marry their daughter <laughs> as a solution to your medical problem, they would could call them on that and complain to the larger medical community that they have broken the understanding of what it is to be a doctor and therefore risk the reputation of doctors if, if it became more widely known that this sort of thing was happening.
0: So I just want to go back to honesty. Um, one way you might think about honesty is that it's a kind of value of communication where different arenas of human life have different sort of forms of goodness that are the characteristic form of goodness of that thing. So like art, okay, let's say art is supposed to be beautiful. That's controversial, but it (laughs) doesn't matter, it's just an example, okay? Um, So um, you might say, look, beauty is the characteristic value that art is supposed to have. Um, you might say, um, you know, of certain kinds of entertainment, it's being entertaining or interesting or engaging to your attention might be the characteristic value of that sort of thing, right? Um, that is, um, you know, the, the world is, is full of, like, heterogeneous kinds of goods, right? Yes. And so you might think that um, honesty isn't just a rule that we follow while talking, right? Any more than beauty is, like, a rule that we follow while making art. We might follow lots of rules while talking, Right? Um, uh, like we might follow rules about like don't spit in the person's face and don't be nasty and whatever, but that honesty is more intimately connected to communication, that it is sort of what it is for the communication to be good as communication in the way that someone might argue, though, controversially, that beauty is what it is for art to be good as art. And that your conception of there's just a norm that we agree on and coordinate around to constrain people for the greatest possible benefit um, that, that would be consistent with, we could have a norm like don't talk too loud, right? Yeah. We, do, we do have such a norm. Right. We have a norm of how far away you're supposed to stand from, right. from the person. We have all these norms right. to coordinate communication. Yes. Honesty seems different to me because it, because those things don't seem to me to be what it is for the communication to be done well. Those just seem to be arbitrary forms of coordination that we had to adopt so that we can get along. But the honesty part is what it is for the communication to be good.
1: So it's certainly true that norms vary in a number of interesting dimensions. One of those would be how important is the problem the norm is addressing and how badly could things go if the norm is violated. We do that with laws as well, of course. Uh, And so in the context of art, you could certainly say that the norm of don't bother people is less important than the norm of being beautiful, therefore offensive art is okay. But they're both things we care about, we just care about the beauty more. And we also have norms vary, as we talked before, and how enforceable they are, how easy it is for someone to see, and then therefore what sort of evidence you would need to be convinced there was a norm violation. Um, So I'm happy to admit that in many different areas, there are different issues to different degrees. So I would certainly say in art, beauty is a bigger issue than convenience even, perhaps. Uh, So if you had a really enormous painting, and it was really beautiful, And you might say, well, that's just inconvenient to put in our museum. People might say, no, we're fundamentally about art. We must find room for this piece of art, even if it's inconvenient, because that's a more fundamental value in in our museum. Um, So with respect to honesty, I'm happy to admit that, you know, honesty could have, dishonesty could have much larger consequences than some other norms like spitting in the face. Spitting in the face is not good, but it's not that big a deal in the context of most conversations. But honesty can be a really big deal and so we might want to therefore you know pay a lot more attention to to
0: honesty than the others see it doesn't seem true spitting in someone's face is a pretty big deal and you're likely to start a fight and uh, and 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 a, and sure. a given in a given instance of dishonesty but, but might not even be such a big deal right. it's so it's but the spitting in the face won't
1: have spreading reper- repercussions for the rest of the community so much right with dishonesty if I tell you something dishonest and you believe me and you spread it and, and then you know it can keep going farther and so there's more harder to follow risks. If somebody spits in your face, you probably notice it. If you don't notice it, it's not a problem. And so you can, even if it's a direct personal harm, it's not something the rest of us need to pay attention to with norms because you will probably deal with it yourself, the parent.
0: Suppose you had to guess, like the, you know, average person, how many times do they lie in a week? You just had to give a number. What, what number would you give?
1: I just happened to yesterday, we were looking at an old blog post of mine. Okay. Talking about how in a five-minute conversation there would be several lies, typically.
0: Okay, so that seems to refute the claim you just made that like if you violate the honesty norm the whole system is going to collapse. It seems like we violate it all the time and the system doesn't collapse. Oh, oh, sure,
1: it's just there would be large instances that could be at risk. But yes, most lies are relatively.
0: Like I think actually honesty is interesting. You could think of a norm as like one way to assess a norm is like how robust is it to violations, right? Some norms, if you start violating them, it really starts to feel like that's actually not the norm anymore, right? So I actually think beauty is an example of this, right? And there was kind of um, a kind of like outrage in the artistic community in periods where the art moves away from the norm of beauty. And I think now it's actually quite controversial even to say that yes. beauty is going norm of art, right? Because that's being the norm is in a way predicated on people following it pretty sure. regularly. And honesty seems to me to be an area where that's not true, where people violate the norm all the time, like every day, and everybody knows that everybody violates the norm, and yet it's such a profound value to us that right. we hold on to the norm in the face. It's extremely robust. So what okay. would explain that?
1: I mean, I'm not sure this is the answer to your question because I have this thought in my head that was responding to your previous question, okay. which is uh, that in different areas of life, we like, have a whole bunch of things we care about, but we also, I think... know to accept your point we coordinate on what we're doing together there right and so we might say decorate shoes and because we like to have decorated shoes and we're going to a party tonight where we want to use our decorated shoes and in that context we might not frame ourselves as artists we might just be decorating shoes and we might do roughly the same thing but think of ourselves as artists and now that would influence what we've decided to do together and the norms might say, so if I'm offended by the way your shoes look, if we're, if this is art I might think I have more of an obligation to accept it, whereas if we're going to the party tonight together wearing the shoes, I think those are ugly shoes to try again. So, in that sense, I could see a place for making a distinction, you know, on terms of the priority of norms and the kind of norms, etc., on what it is we've decided we are doing in a context relative to other considerations and so if you want to say that in some context what we are doing is more central to honesty that's the thing we are saying that we're doing together then
0: in that context honesty would be more important but it seems i mean it seems like at that point the paradox recurs like how can honesty be the thing that we're doing together isn't the thing that we're doing together always just doing what's good and if what's honest isn't what's good no
1: i mean so the world is huge we are a lot of different people we have a lot of different hours in our life and so we specialize right each of us does different things and at any one interaction we frame it as the kind of thing we're doing together and that helps us be more effective because of the great division of labor if every relationship is simultaneously a doctor advising relationship and an art relationship and an econ consulting relationship and an auto fixing relationship then you know we're just trying to do the good but we're not sure what we're doing and we okay. don't necessarily coordinate well so to coordinate well we need to agree together roughly on what we are doing in any one context and have that be the focus and priority of that interaction you know it could be it's open to change but we, we do need to choose what we're doing and then it won't just be doing the good, it'll be doing the good in that context. It'll be the kind of good that you are have you have agreed to do together.
0: So then let's say um let's say you're right, and that there are sort of gonna be like we lie a lot in conversation, but there's maybe gonna be some contexts in which honesty is especially important. Or trial,
1: for example, where you right. are sworn to be honest and it's not, you know, and it's considered much more of a problem if you're dishonest. One testifying in court,
0: right? So that's one way to know. But normally, if you want to know whether you're in the context in which that value is paramount, or like it's not always made explicit. So, like, are we in such a context now? Or how, how can one tell whether one is in the honesty context or not? Because it seems a little bit puzzling. Like, if you were to tell me we're not in the honesty context, <laughs> right. right? Then I can't believe anything you say. Is that a thing you can say? You, I, I mean, I think you can say we're in it, but can you say we're not in it?
1: Well, I agree that in almost all conversations, there is some implicit norm of honesty default with an expectation of common violations. Uh, And if you're going to be unusually dishonest, you need to flag that, i.e. actors on a stage have flagged for themselves that they are unusually dishonest with each other. They are playing these characters and they are not themselves. Uh,
0: Do you think actors are being dishonest?
1: There's a sense in which they are, but I mean, it's less important. I'm less, you know, exactly what the word honesty means matters less to me than what it should mean maybe, or what the useful concept is. Similarly, I don't think I'm gonna be very helpful in finding out what the actual honesty norms are, right? To find out that you wanna specialize in you know, surveys and talking to a lot of different people and cultures and ages and genders, et cetera, to see what their attitude toward honesty is in different contexts. And then you wanna know what, what their attitude, which of those attitudes are norm-based versus just other-based, right? So, But I think we could have a more productive conversation about what should be the basis for choosing honesty norms. How would we know how to decide when we have good honesty norms? That is, what are our standards for them?
0: Before we have that conversation, I want to go back to this question of, okay, so you're in a situation where you have these honesty norms where it's partly accepted that you're not going to be totally honest. So let's say we're in one of those situations right now where I don't have to be like 100% honest. I only have to be like 80% honest. So or like 95. But yeah. Okay. 95. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, and then, like, it still seems to me that if you learned, like, you know, that I told this little lie during this conversation, like, you might, or at least I, if it were the other way around, I wouldn't be like, well, that was within the 5%. I would be, like, annoyed that you lied. and that's so
1: because usually you can't
0: tell. I mean, well, sure, like, but I should expect. Like, is it irrational? Well, really, so,
1: I mean, basically, you're trying to estimate their rate of lying, yeah. which you always probably are I mean, right. with everybody. You don't get that many signals. You don't actually catch them in a lie very often. And so when you do, that's a big data point. And you're wondering, you know, you know, updating your estimate. I mean, maybe they're pretending to be 95%, maybe they are only 80. And you know, seeing two lies in a row in five minutes that you caught you might think this person's lying a lot more than most.
0: Right, I, I get that one thing that I can do is be adjusting my estimate of how much they're lying. But another thing I can do is be morally outraged at the norm violation, right? And what I'm saying is, it seems to me that if you were right about how we only expect so much honesty, then when we encounter lies, at least some of the time, we should, much of the time, in a way, we should be like, "Well, that falls within my estimate, so it's actually a permissible amount." So they didn't actually violate the norm, unless they went above them. No, I mean,
1: so in general, in law, we have this concept of enforceability, and we have many kinds of laws that are just quite commonly broken. Nevertheless, we accept that. Any one case where you find the violation should be enforced, like speeding, for example, right? a lot of speeding violations But we still say hey, if you know they pull them over and they caught them speeding, then yeah, that they should be prosecuted So it's quite possible to have a norm that's commonly violated Nevertheless, our norm is still that if a violation is pointed out to us clear away, then by the usual enforcement.
0: But I thought you were saying that we expect different degrees of honesty in different contexts, right? And so I was trying to pick one of those contexts in which we only expect 95% yeah. honesty. And if you only expect 95% and I give you 95%, which includes yeah. my lie that I told you, then I haven't violated the norm.
1: If the norm were to be 95% honest, but I, that's not the norm. The norm is to be 100% honest but it's violated 5% of the time
0: but i thought you said that there were contexts in which on- we're doing honesty together yeah. right and like in the law it's like serious maybe a, right. maybe in the law it's 100% okay. right but now you know we're not this isn't we're not in a law court we're just doing podcasts. so maybe it's 95% so that's our context it, it doesn't that mean that that's a different norm that we're applying we're applying the norm b95% on it, such that if i were only right. 10% honest you would have a real claim against me, Agnes, you're lying So, so
1: take speeding, right? Yeah. It's a norm not to speed, but yeah. the degree of severity of the violation is considered to depend on context. Right. So uh, in that sense, you could say the norm is different. Like if, if it's raining heavy and people can't see very much, then speeding is a bigger violation. Whereas right. if the air is clear and there aren't very really many cars, then speeding is less of a violation, et cetera, right? So we have a way we vary our speeding norm by context, even if... We might enforce any one case that we see all as a violation, so we still might have the rule: okay, you were speeding, then that's that's breaking. We might say, well, we'll punish you less in this context for speeding than in that context. So the norm can vary by context without necessarily giving an excuse differently in different contexts. Although that's also that also applies.
0: Right. Okay. So you might say, for example, if my lie was small enough, right. Um, like suppose you asked me how I was doing, and I was like, "Good," I'm but fine. actually, I was like, <laughs> right. "Not doing well," right? You yeah, can even see and, that in your face, and, perhaps. But. And 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 then I'm, and then you're like, "Okay," but that's like speeding five miles an hour off the limit. That's fine. I'm just gonna let that one go, right? right? So that's your, is that your thought that we are enforcing these norms, and there are these little lies, which even if we catch the person in the little lie, we don't get outraged, and then not getting outraged is like the not either either small fine or no fine. I'm not even
1: sure outrage is binary either. <laughs> uh, so. Again, the legal analogy, I think, helps us show the range of dimensions that are possible with respect to laws, and most of those dimensions are also possible with respect to norms. So laws can vary in uh, not just, you know, where the line is drawn, say, for speeding, but say the size of the punishment by different contexts. We can also vary how much we've paid for enforcers to be out there looking for them. We also vary how much we will trust any one witness who claims to have seen it. Uh, there's just all these different dimensions and then yes of course typically the enforcers have a budget and they choose priorities and they quite often do the police quite often do say jaywalking you know it's just not a priority <laughs> unless somebody really puts it in our face we're not going to even if i see it as i drive by i'm not even going to do anything unless somebody makes me right and that's also the kind of thing we do with norms uh we you know we know that we see a norm relation that we could complain about it and we would be entitled to complain and you know if it were the following characteristics other would feel obligated to acknowledge that we it was a violation and to join in sanctioning it to some degree but for many norm violations we see we don't actually bother to complain and this outrage in your head is some sort of indication inside you of how inclined you are to complain you know if the outrage bubbles to a high enough level you just feel compelled to complain but if it's a low level of outrage then it'll be you know, how busy am i and you know do i have a beef with this person i might complain about and, you know, you have all these you know, factors that you include in deciding subconsciously how outraged to feel and whether to complain about the violation.
0: So there's a different way to see honesty. I, like, the way you're seeing it is um, you're kind of taking for granted the concept of coordinating with people, like that we yes. coordinate with other people. But then that coordination has to to be governed by norms, so the norms... Well, it doesn't, I mean, there are many
1: ways to coordinate, it's one of the ways...
0: Okay, but, right, so norms come in as a means of, um, kind of like, regulating this coordinating behavior. Um, But you might think, so like, I think, I connect honesty up with concepts like trust and betrayal, right? Where there are many norm violations that someone could do, like spitting in my face, be a norm violation. It might right. be very upsetting, and it might even be a betrayal of trust under relevant context. But right. um, um, you know, but like certainly something like speeding, like it's like you might be breaking a rule, but I just might not care that much, right? But so, but if, if especially in some contexts, lying, um, what it seems to do is to shake the very possibility of coordination. That is you're helping yourself to the idea of coordination, like here's this thing, coordination, right? But you might think that part of what honesty is, is it sort of describes a kind of coordination. That is, if I'm honest with you, I'm like giving you access to my mind, right? And I'm sort of like letting you into my mind. And so then when we communicate, we are in effect coordinating our minds. If I'm dishonest with you, then I'm having you coordinate sort of with someone else who I'm not, right? With like an image that I want you to, you know? And I'm in some sense then not even, I'm like almost manipulating your mind, right? I'm like trying to give you these beliefs, right? Um, I'm trying to give you these beliefs that are not the beliefs that I have. right? Right. And so you might just think, um, honesty is a kind of name for coordination. It's how we coordinate, it's not that we, you know? No, I mean. (laughs)
1: So, for example, one way we coordinate is trade, right? And so, imagine that the typical bazaar scenario: you're walking through a bazaar, and there's a rug. You find it intriguing. You, you pause and you stare at the rug, and the, the the proprietor says, "This rug for you today, discounted. I offer you, you know, X price." And you say, to you, "You say, no, it's, it's not, you know, worth that much." Of your I would, at most, be willing to pay Y for this, right? And then you go back and forth in price negotiations. Now, everybody knows that that's usually somewhat dishonest Mm -hmm. in the sense that the lowest I will take was X is not true because a minute later you will take X minus 100 uh, and vice versa, but it's part of the usual routine of of negotiating in trade is to uh, make offers and counteroffers that you sometimes pretend are your final offer. Uh, And you coordinate successfully in the sense that you often do make the trade and buy the rug but you both know that the other one is going to be trying to get the best deal, and part of their trying to get the best deal is to not admit quite as much how much they wanted or the cost of getting it up. And that's a context in which a very standard accepted degree of dishonesty is part of the coordination.
0: Right, so maybe one way to think about it is we could take coordination and evaluate it on a metric, and the metric would be kind of closeness. And I'm not sure exactly how to sort of um, how to make this precise? But it would be something like there are forms of coordination that are uh, that are very loose, right? And then there are ones that are tighter. And the loose ones, um, it's like you know there could be a thing, for instance, where where there's like a location and people just um, leave stuff there when they don't need it, and then right. other people take stuff when exactly. they need it, that right? That would be very low coordination. Very sure. low, and and like a market is tighter than that, right? Right. right. Um, but um, um, so I think of honesty as maybe marking sort of that innermost boundary of extremely tight coordination, right? And, um, and that's, that's okay. why it, it's in a way right to say honesty is coordination, but also true to say that there are forms of coordination that are dishonest, but those are the looser ones.
1: I might more just frame the question in terms of what facilitates cooperation. And that includes multiple forms and when we get to that level you know much of say negotiation negotiation is is one form of coordination right where we make offers to each other and then make a choice and in negotiation over deals uh, a reputation for honesty and a habit of honesty and a belief in honesty will help it help you be easier to make good deals so that's a general feature of negotiation Uh, if both of you can just be honest about what you want what you don't want and you can more quickly figure out the deal that gives you, you know, the most for each of you. So, uh, and that's good, right? So, that's a sense in which honesty helps coordination. It's not the only thing that helps coordination. There are, we can identify a number of other features in these contexts that will promote coordination. And there are other kinds of coordination. But in other kinds of coordination, honesty could still help with coordination.
0: So, I have like a general rule in how I think about reputation for any time a reputation for X is valuable. That's going to be because independently and in the first instance, X is valuable, right? So saying like a reputation for X is good is explanatorily posterior to some other thing where you okay. explain why X itself is good. Right, but
1: it honestly, facilitates court deals, deal making.
0: Well, so I want to say, um, um, you know, coordination, deals, cooperation, all of that is um, you could you could. Um, you could view it in two ways. You could have the number of deals, right? So like people can make more deals, right? And that's something you're into than making well, more deals. Good. We
1: would want to do a weighted sum of the value of the deals times. You know, oh, okay, you know, you know.
0: but but there's another. I'm looking at it from another angle. It's like imagine there's another dimension to the problem in addition to the dimensions that you're looking at. My dimension is how tight is the coordination. So like um, 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 if you look at circumstances in which dishonesty is viewed as especially betrayal-like and, and violation yeah. of trust and whatever, it's going to be, say, in intimate relationships, right? Okay. So those tend, I think, tend to be the context in which people view dishonesty as especially destructive. Now... What
1: the tail of the distribution is there. I mean, in most relationships, there are there's conversations they point, have all day, there's plenty of yes, very low absolutely. sales. Absolutely, and songs, so right?
0: even, even there, there's going to be maybe certain topics on which dishonesty about those topics is particularly problematic. But the point is... Um, um, what, what you have if in an intimate relationship, what is an intimate relationship? It's a form of coordination, right? It's a form of cooperation. Um, but it's, you know, there's a difference between the way you cooperate with your child or your spouse on the one hand and the way that you cooperate with buying or selling something. Um, and the way that I'm trying to describe that difference is that you it's more tight with the, um, the spouse or the child. Um, and so because you're doing a different kind of coordination, right? Right. Um, One that is tighter, which is to say one that in some sense, it's like more directly involves like your mind coordinating with their mind. Um, Honesty like is the um, it sort of describes that form of tight coordination. And then as people do the looser forms of coordination, they can leverage off of that. And be like, oh, you're a trustworthy business associate because you treat me almost as though I were your wife and you're going to okay. be that honest to me, right? Okay. So that's your reputation, right? The reputation for honesty in a way is like a reputation for taking this very tight form of coordination that's appropriate in intimate relationships and actually like, you know, having that be like, apply more generally.
1: I agree that we can spread, you know, relationships on a spectrum, tight or loose, uh, sort of deep intimate you know strong relationships on one end and loose distant temporary relationships say on the mm-hmm. other in the spectrum and um that one of the you know classic descriptions of the modern world is that we have fewer deep relationships and more distant relationships and you know that's the market economy for example uh, mm-hmm. more and more trade with, with arms length relationships and in the past you know your cobbler was your friend and you knew them and you know etc and uh you know we also like people are nostalgic for times of war sometimes after the time of war because we all felt so close back then Mm -hmm. and they felt that there was just a lot at stake in the relationships and they felt bonded to be together because they had this common enemy and so there's certainly a lot of interesting things to say about to what degree do we want relationships to be how close and whether we are getting enough of that today uh and it's certainly true that for any one thing you might say, you could get away with lying about it more easily to a stranger than to a close intimate. Um, they will, you know, and that you are therefore less likely to lie about any one thing merely because they would know different, <laughs> right? Uh, at, at the bazaar selling the rug, you could tell them that you were a you could tell them that you were a computer programmer who doesn't have much use for rugs, and not be honest that you were a dentist and plan on putting it in your entrance lobby, you know, at which point they might wanna charge you for that, but uh, with your wife, you can't lie to them and tell them that you're a programmer instead of a dentist because they will know otherwise, right? So it's just true as a nature of the fact that relationships are close, that we just know a lot more about each other, and therefore a lot of things it would just not make sense to lie about. But then there are gonna be things at a boundary of things where they might not be so sure, and then that would be the issue of how honest you are. Now, it's not clear to me that in fact, Taking that into account, closer relationships are more honest. Uh, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, good. I think you're right about
0: that. So, so um, okay, so maybe let's bring in a third thing here. I think you're right that this spectrum doesn't quite track what I wanted it to track. And there is one context in which, um, well, let's say maybe more than one context in which there's a kind of conceit that, um, this paradox of honesty doesn't exist, which is to say that the um, telling the truth and doing the good are just going to come together. I think the legal context is one context where there's some conceit of that kind. Right. But maybe um, intellectual activity, intellectual inquiry, like what we're doing right now, right. Like, I think that it would just be weird if I were lying to you. Like it, it's, a little, it's a little hard to imagine that I can achieve some good um, by lying to you in this context.
1: I think you just need to spend a little longer and then you'll be able to imagine these things. <laughs> oh, it's that hard.
0: Right. And I, I mean, one can certainly imagine yeah. it in the law case too, right? right. It's, it's not unimaginable. But it's, what I want to say is it's a kind of, you know, so we have these norms. I think the norms of honesty are extremely strong in intellectual pursuits, right? Like, if you're writing a physics paper or something, you're not supposed to, like, make up false physics. the
1: the lip service for them is strong. Whether the practice is strong is a different question.
0: Okay, well, so you were just saying, like, are people actually more honest in um, intimate relationships? Do you think people are more honest in, you know, their their published research or something?
1: So, I mean, actually, I would say probably the main factor affecting how honest people are is... likely are to get caught if they're dishonest so and that's also true for intellectuals so intellectuals will be honest especially carefully on things that if they are dishonest they will get caught likely and where the consequences would seem to be large so among intellectuals if you sort of date the first draft of your paper of August it was really September uh, we might not get very upset about that Um, whereas other important parts of the paper, maybe the data set, if that was all made up, then that would be a much bigger deal. Uh, But academics are dishonest, as we know, in many ways that violate their norms. Like, as you know, there's this recent replication crisis, and it's a p-hacking crisis. And, you know, the p-hacking crisis is about uh, how much search you do to find a particular statistical analysis that apparently gives statistical significance. And the norm would be first of all that you don't do any search you just define your you know procedure up front and then you just report it Mm -hmm. or if you do search you report the search and adjust your p-values for the degree of search you did and but that's very hard to monitor and enforce and so we see from the overall academic literature that there is in fact a lot of p-hacking going on a lot of people search among specifications and then report the p for the specification as if they didn't do any search so And there are a number of other ways that the literature on academic behavior finds widespread dishonesty when it's hard to catch and enforce. So they're often interesting that you can look at an average of behavior and find on average the level of honesty and not be able to identify any one case which one is being honest. And that's these ways we can tell how honest people are being in cases where each one of them.
0: That's but interesting. So people are. I mean, so you know, I guess one thing is, it's not going to be a function of how likely people are to get caught. It's going to be a function of how that is how 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 many lies we catch is going to be a function of how good people are at predicting, right? Whether or not. So maybe yeah. also intellectuals are. Yeah, you know, they might be good at uh, they're good at predicting whether or not they're going to get caught, right? Right. Um, so they uh, lie when they know they
1: won't get caught more often.
0: Uh, but but um, uh, you know, so do you think? Um, one thing you might care about is whether you're going to get caught. And another thing you might care about is whether this whole phenomenon will be caught, even if you aren't individually. But so your thought is people don't care about the second thing. Right. They That's just We care find about. it relatively
1: easy to see overall levels of dishonesty when we can't tell individual dishonesty.
0: Right. I mean, so I think that... Um, um, you know, as I see it, this thing, this this bee hacking thing, is it's called a crisis for a reason, right? And if you did a if you did a study of married couples or something, and you discovered like you know they, there's like twenty percent lying or something, I don't think we called the marital crisis. Um, uh, and so I still think that that is. I think that's kind of hype and, and
1: misleading bluster to call it a crisis. I, in fact, don't think they care very much. So. And let me offer you concrete evidence So, on the related replication crisis. So the replication crisis is that people are often do studies and through p-hacking in part, but in other ways, to produce a result that won't replicate. Uh, that is, if you try it again, you won't get the same answer. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's seen as a problem that we have so many results that don't replicate. <laughs> um, one of the things you could do as a journal to not publish papers that won't replicate is you could do a survey or a prediction market where you ask people, will this paper replicate And it turns out people can judge that pretty well. People who look at a paper and have some experience in replication literature can judge whether individual papers will or won't replicate. So journals have it within their power to reject papers that are much more likely to replicate. And one way they could do this is to uh, when they have a submission to a paper, put that paper to a prediction market. Say, ask, "Will this paper replicate?" And then, if they get an especially low number, say, "No, thank you. Uh, this paper won't replicate." So, I've been somewhat on the periphery involved with the project, which not only had prediction markets on papers of whether they would replicate, which showed that in fact it's relatively easy to predict if papers will replicate. But at the beginning of this project, you know, I had the group try to approach journals saying, would you like to be part of this project such that you would tell your people who submit to your journal that they will be part of this project so their paper will be put up for evaluation and the score that we get about the chance of your paper replicating will go into our evaluation of your paper. No journals were interested, basically.
0: Right, so, I mean, the way to think about this, right, is that the whole journal system and, 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 and more largely the academic system is caught in the sort of crosshairs of the honesty paradox, right? Which is that, let's just take it at the level of the individual researcher. The individual researcher's incentives are that they have to produce some surprising result, right? right. In order to get published, in order to you right. know, get a job, keep their job, et cetera, exactly. right? And so um, in order to do good as they see it, that's what they have to do, right? right. Um, whereas in order to tell the truth, right, they'd have to do a different thing, Right, so we've we 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 have um, there are like um, pragmatic facts about the way that the system works, where the desire to do good is going to pull you in the opposite, at least for yourself, right. is going to pull you in the opposite direction from the desire to tell the truth. Do you think there are any context? So 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 what we what what we can conclude there is at least as it stands, academia is is, um, is caught in this and the attempts to correct it are perhaps getting caught in the same trap, right? Because there's right. no reason to think that attempts to correct it aren't going to, like, it, it, once these things are aligned, then they would be very open to suggestions like yours, right? But right now, they're not because the things, well, you're, you're, you're like the same position as an individual researcher.
1: This is the concept of institutions and institution reform. And this has been a specialty of mine for many decades. And I'm an economist, and I've you know, studied this academically, etc. So... The key idea is to say that in any particular area of life, uh, if people have some usual degree of selfishness, say, or bias toward themselves, then their local incentives produce a net behavior that can be lamentable for the whole system. And recommending to any one person that they sacrifice themselves for the benefit of improving the system, you know, falls on deaf ears. Uh, unless, you know, you could say, what well, we're trying to coordinate to a new system. And so, That's the question about institutional reform. How do we ever coordinate to change systems?
0: Right. But it looks like the person that you're going to talk to at the journal is still part of the same system and still has the same incentives. So in all different
1: areas of life, uh, the question is, you know, who is the best best audience for suggesting reform? And what is the best kind of pitch or what kind of homework should you have done before you make the pitch? That is, what should they have a right to expect from you? in your pitch to make a right. change Right, and to do their you system. think,
0: suppose they're unwilling to make the change to their system, do you think that that shows that you screwed up, that is, that you didn't make the right pitch or you didn't uh, approach the right person? Well, so in one fundamental
1: sense, um, we might say there's an ultimate customer. And if we think, like, an institution is all for the customer, then if we, if we make our pitch to the customer and the customer doesn't want it, then yes, there's more sense in which we didn't understand the customer. So, for example, think about medicine. We say, what's medicine for? You might say, well, medicine is for the doctors to have a nice office in the hospital, right? And for us to watch medical TV shows. And you might say, no, 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 Med- medicine is for the patients, right? That's what's well, all for the patients, right? And if something's going wrong, you don't go recommend it to the doctors per se or to the hospital or to the health insurance company. It, you might try that and you might be able to succeed. But if they say no, you might think the customer is the ultimate person I should be making my pitch to. Can I convince the customer to make a switch? So for example, you know, this happened with, say, HMOs, right? We had the ordinary fee-for-service doctor relationship long ago, and then there was a long period of the producing the innovation of HMOs, health maintenance organizations. And the difference was you pay us per month, and then we do everything for you. And, uh, you know, if, if we have to do a lot this month, we lose, and if we do a little this month, we win, but that's going to be the new deal. And if you suggested that to any one doctor in 1900, they might say, well, I don't like it. I think I'll make more money under the fee-for-service. But somebody was willing to create an HMO, a new institution then to try to attract customers. And as soon as they did that, the doctors used the government to try to prevent them from doing it because they coordinated to make it illegal and then to put a lot of legal roadblocks. It was actually World War II that really got HMOs going with Kaiser at the shipyards in Oakland um, because the you know the government needed chips and whatever it took to. Get those workers happy to make the shifts, they were willing to do it, and if they wanted an HMO in there, the union wanted an HMO for their health plan, then that was okay. But anyway, you know that's an example of going to the customer. And over time, HMOs have become much more common, uh, and many customers became convinced it was a better deal. Like me, I, I use an HMO. But many other customers have not been convinced, and you might say, that's a problem. Whatever your theory is that says HMOs are a better deal for customers, the fact that most customers don't choose HMOs Means that you, your your model is fully right. You're, you're missing something.
0: I uh, my view is that medicine is not for the patients. My view is medicine is for the sake of health. But I think we have to save that for another conversation <laughs> because I want we only have a little bit of time left, and I want to um, uh, I want to go back to the honesty thing. Um, so so what we've determined is that um, there are these like um, two. Um, um, let's say, motivations or incentives that pull apart, the desire to do good and the desire to speak the truth, and um, that in, like in many contexts they're going to pull apart, and even in intimate relationships they pull apart, and even in academic or intellectual contexts they pull apart. Do you think there's any context in which they don't, that is in which I, one I, can... I think ses- I want to
1: resist the framing here, I would say. you know More generally, the way we economists think about it is there's your individual interest and there's a collective interest, and mm-hmm. those are pulling apart. And in this context, that happens to be via the mechanism of being dishonest, but it's not fundamentally about honesty as the conflict. It's about the collective good. That is, everybody who does p-hacking can look and see that, on average, we're all worse off because we do p-hacking, but they each have an individual incentive still to do p-hacking.
0: So that seems like... I, I get how you could carve things up that way in terms of if you're doing institution reform, that's going to be what you're interested in. But I'm covering things up differently in that I'm interested in cases where... You're going to um, say what's false because you think it does more good. In some of those cases, it might do more good overall. Like maybe in intimate relationships, people actually do more good overall by saying what's false. But I would still say that's a context that is not optimized for truth-telling, right? If, in fact, you're regularly going to be in a situation where you can do more good by saying what's false, then you have, I would say, a non-ideal communicative context. And so academia, too, is going to be a non-ideal community of conflict, at least certain kinds right. of research, right? And in, 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 in academia, there's an additional issue, which is maybe that society is also worse off. But I'm less interested in that. I'm just right. interested in the pulling apart but, between so, honesty and But just something. to connect
1: them together, I might say, you know, in general, if you see an equilibrium where people are being dishonest, I think it's reasonable to infer there's an alternative equilibrium where they were honest, which would be at least as good. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, it's, it's showing you, hey, there, there's something better we could do. Uh, I think that is roughly right, in fact there's a theorem in in incentive design, mechanism design about uh, basically for any equilibrium there's an equivalent truth-telling equilibrium where you tell the truth. Hmm. But that's an abstract, formal result that may not be so relevant to individual conversations. But I definitely think that it's a, a very strong heuristic, a powerful heuristic that an equilibrium where people are lying is probably worse. There's probably some other, in principle, where they didn't tell the truth, but the question is can we figure out how to get there?
0: Okay, wait, I want to challenge you to actually produce that in a given case. So, take my, I'm wearing a very pretty dress that has yeah. flying fish on it. And so, yeah. I ask you, do you like my dress? And now, the equilibrium that we live in, in my experience, is if I ask you that question, you have to say you like it. Yes. Right? So, that's a kind of lying equilibrium about do you like people's clothing? So, tell me, how do we switch to the truth telling?
1: Well, uh, in the context of these usual game theories, they're not including the effect I think you're alluding to here. Uh, but, you know, in a sense, we might interpret my saying I like your dress as meaning that <laughs> your dress is acceptable because if that's what it usually actually means, uh, That is, this word like is, is isn't you know, its meaning isn't written in stone and we could then, and I think people often do, <laughs> Reinterpret these words in these contexts. No, it's not what I mean. mean. (laughs) Like
0: I mean like is it pretty like is it especially nice? And I want everyone to tell me that all my dresses are especially nice And I think you can pretty much get people to do that by being like don't you think this is an especially nice dress or something And they'll be like yeah certainly like my my friends would probably say like yeah in some moods They would say no
1: so in in that sort of context. I think what you fundamentally want is a relative ranking so You know, so so for example, think of letters of recommendation Mm -hmm. for students or or Mm -hmm. professors, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that people exaggerate, right? Mm -hmm. So, and then the game is, you know, where does it stand relative to the usual distribution of exaggerations? So when you read a letter like that, you you basically, if they say that this person is the top 1% of students I've ever seen, you think, what does that really mean? Maybe it means 10%. And you're adjusting in your mind the exaggerated claims to, to calibrate them to a more realistic distribution of claims. Now, if we had a system with letters where they actually had a budget of these rankings and they had to like post all of the people that ever gave a letter of recommendation to and put them in an overall order, then they wouldn't be able to lie about that order, right? And then when you saw 10%, you know, it really was 10%, it didn't mean 30%. And then, you know, we'd all be roughly in the same situation getting the same information out of the letter. So, the the fact is, if my saying that dress was pretty, I was forced to have this budget of how often, you know, I said that and where it was in the ranking, then I might have to choose, right? If I tell you your dress is at the 80th percentile level today, then the next person I tell I'll have to say it's at the 20th percentile. And I'm asking, you know, am I willing to pay that cost later to especially rank you high at the mall?
0: Right. So, uh, and I, just as an aside, of all the kinds of text that I read regularly in my life, the kind that I have the hardest time extracting information from are letters of recommendation. And you would think that, like, you know, after, like, a decade as a professor, I would get good at this. I don't seem to have improved. Like, basically, I can't get anything out of it. Right. Like, I, I, I think I'm unusually bad at, like, I mean, if there's something that's being this said... this is one of the costs of lying,
1: is that it's harder to calibrate what things mean. So, so I mean, I've heard people interpreting letters of recommendation, and what they do is they have a very field-specific, context-specific interpretation strategy where they know that this person has said these things, and they heard from somebody else that this other person has said those things. And that means they need to use a lot of context to be able to interpret. Right. And that's a cost of this ambiguous kind of language. And that's, in general, a cost of ambiguous language that is... There's a sense in which if we were all just very clear and direct in our language, then we would all have a lower cost of understanding things. And our habit of being vague on purpose often in many things we say puts us all at a disadvantage because now all of us have trouble figuring out what these vague things mean. There aren't clear definitions of vague words.
0: Right, but I think so going back to the dress case, I think like if you were like, you know, that's in the top. Like thirty percent of dresses that I've seen this month, or something. Right. Like, um, I wouldn't be that happy with that because, like, I want that. Maybe I want this dress to be more special than that, or something. Whereas, like, but right. I might be okay with it, right? I might be, but like, it, then if you were like, you know, maybe it's only in the top fifty percent, right? Versus if I'm just if I'm just like, do you like my dress? And You're like, oh, it's very pretty. I'm happy with that whole encounter. So what I'm wondering is, you you told me that we are going to be able to have another equilibrium that's the truth telling equilibrium that captures everything I wanted right. out of the line in equilibrium in which I'm happy because people tell me my dress right. is pretty and but, but it seems to me that the one you're proposing with a limited budget of praise okay, words right. is not going to make me happy
1: so just to be clear these usual game theory models I'm referring to are assuming what we call rational agents who have a set of preferences and then their beliefs are just instrumental in producing actions that help them achieve their preferences
0: now are you saying I'm not a rational agent?
1: <laughs> I'm saying that uh we have a preference for a certain kind of dishonesty that is, that it seems more plausible that we just more directly have the preference for dishonesty
0: here. And if we do have that preference, then the theorem doesn't right, hold Right, exactly, that you- of course. Okay.
1: Uh, and th- that this is part of how we're built, and this is a key thing to understand about people. So people are hypocritical, and in some ways they want to be hypocritical, and a world that produces the same outcomes without the hypocrisy will be... Less happy because they less have the pretense that they want. They, people want pretense of various sorts in many ways. They want to pretend to themselves that they are prettier than they are, and they want to pretend to themselves they're more honest than they are. And many of our institutions are vague and hard to enforce exactly to allow these sorts of pretenses.
0: And- but so going back to, do you, like, so there are different contexts, right, in different spheres of human life, and honesty is going to be differentially important in those different contexts. If you had to pick, like, is there some context, and you can be as specific as you want, right, yeah. in which that preference for dishonesty is at a minimum, um, what, what would it be?
1: Uh, well, my preference would have to go along with other people sharing this preference, <laughs> Otherwise, right, so you might work. You,
0: right, I, I'm not talking about you. Right. I'm not talking about what context, right? And then right. you might sometimes so, be in that context. I, mean,
1: I would think that we have some things we say that are especially important, where a lot is at stake.
0: And you think in those contexts? Because you might think you might be very inclined to lie in those contexts to make sure that. Well, right, but right.
1: I, I would yeah. like there to be a community, at least, which shares a strong knowing that at least in this community, and this community specializes in these important topics, uh-huh. say a community of intellectuals. So for, for example, say forms of government, Like it's important that we have a good form of government. right? So people who specialize in understanding different forms of government, who would be in a position to expertly recommend different, even new forms of government, that's a really important choice, and it would be great if those people in that community had a norm of being especially honest about the most especially important things they talked to each other about there and it would be even better if outsiders believed they had that norm so Wait. that they could in fact make a recommendation on a really important thing and have people believe they were in fact being very honest about their recommendation so that we could all then believe what they say and do what they say and be better off
0: which of the, suppose you had to choose between them actually having the norm and them being believed to have the norm which is more important
1: well, the conjunction is the important thing. If if you believe they're honest and they're not, then they won't be telling you what the actual best forms of government is, and you'll be adopting the recommendations that aren't best, and right. that won't be very good at all.
0: But presumably, you would at some point be willing to trade off some amount of intra-group honesty for extra group reputation. Because otherwise, they're not going to well, make their thing happen. I mean, happens? it's a matter of
1: like who the audiences are that they should be pitching to, and we just need a big enough audience to believe them. We don't need everybody. So for example, imagine there are startup cities in the world who are in the market for a new form of government. We want those people especially to believe the honest recommendations about forms of government because they are especially able to take action on it. So in general, like who do we need to believe doctors? if doctors are telling the truth, well, we need sick people to believe doctors. We don't really need well people to believe them if they aren't taking any action based on what the doctors say. So lots of ordinary well people not believing doctors is just fine. Uh,
0: In this platonic dialogue called the Gorgias, um, this orator named Gorgias says, "You know, sometimes my brother who's a doctor and I, we both go to the patient because I'm an orator. I'm much better (laughs) at persuading the patient to take painful medicine than my brother who's the doctor, right? right? So, um, you know, it might be the case that um, there is a trade-off. Like, if You have two values here, right? You have the value of this group uh, in, sure. in an intellectually honest way pursuing this end, and then you want them to have a reputation among at least some people, right? Right. Um, and so it's that package that you really want, right? Um, and so that
1: highlights the importance of our institutions of advice, <laughs> that is, Our institutions of advice are in some sense our most important, most meta-institution because all the other institutions are only going to be valuable if they can be fed through the institution of advice. If they produce insight but that nobody will believe them, or the important people who would take action don't believe them, then they're not very useful. So yes, and in fact I have tried to center my attention on the institution of
0: advice. So that would be then the place where you would most want to both have and have a reputation for honesty is in the institution of advice. Right, even more than forms of government,
1: right? If I can create an institution of advice that's reliable, then that could even create incentives for people who, say, specialize in forms of government to actually be honest because the institution of advice will make them be honest.
0: But you might think that there's going to be a problem in centering your, um, attempting to center the honesty there, because you have to ask, who are the kinds of people who want to give advice, right? Yeah. Not everyone does, of right? Of course. Um, um, but um, I would say wanting to give advice that is actually then taken, right, is, right. Cl- is, is sort of close to wanting to rule, right? That is, you want the order, as you see it in your mind, to be the order of how things are. That, that's quite different from wanting to know the truth about things. So, like, it could be coincidentally right. that there is somebody who wants to know the truth, and he also wants the order in his mind right. to inform the world. But those are two independent facts that just right. could coincidentally right.
1: come together. But, but let's just clearly define what we want, and I think it encompasses all these effects. <laughs> I mean, we want a good institution for advice. That good institution of advice needs to therefore meet a number of criteria here. So it, first of all, needs to give advice on the topics of advice desired. Whoever the customers are for advice, if it's advising them on shoestring color and they don't care about shoestring color, then that's a failure of this institution of advice. It should be advising people on the things they care about. Secondly, it should be capable of convincing the people who <laughs> who, who are there advising that it in fact is good advice. Accurate, uh, high status, whatever else they want from the advice. Next. Given the kind of advice the customers want and that they want accurate, informed advice, it needs to go induce other people who might be able to learn about those topics to go bother to do that effort and to participate in the institution somehow so that their advice is included. And presumably there are many people who participate, so the advice that needs to be merged and aggregated into some summary forms and then given to the Customers who who want the advice. So if there are people reluctant to give advice, then this institution faces that problem And that's a good institution will be an institution that finds a way to overcome that problem And if there are people who are dishonest and wanting to influence the advice which there are because they have agendas This institution needs to be properly skeptical about those people. And again, that's the problem faced by the institution of advice
0: and, I mean, presumably you would want the institution also to grow such people, right? To of course, yeah, you know, in
1: the longer term, you want to, to train them, We want to induce the training of them and the development of them, the selection of them, and then how they allocate their time between learning in general and learning about a specific problem and learning, talking with their colleagues to, you know, all of those things. We want to induce, you know, the right trade-offs of those things in order to produce the best advice, Yes.
0: And do you think there's any tension in trying to raise or grow people who are both passionately motivated to seek the truth on the one hand and equally, independently, passionately motivated to make the world match an image of the world in their mind?
1: Just think about all the other professions and all the other specialties that people have in jobs. Uh, you know, there's just a wide variety of the ideal person for that job. And typically, it doesn't have that much to do with how committed those people are to the overall purpose of the job. That this is a fact about people and jobs.
0: Though this is a very important job. Nevertheless, it's still true
1: about a wide range of jobs. And I'm not even sure I see a correlation between their sort of emotional attachment to the larger goal of the job, and their being good at the job, and fitting well in the role that they're assigned in in the industry or the profession they're in. Uh, so.
0: So it's almost really the institution that's giving the advice, not the people. Yes,
1: exactly. That that is the way we think about institutions. The fundamental choice in the world, in some sense, more fundamental choice is institutions because once you have institutions, they last, they they get stuck, as we talked about, it can be hard to change them, and then people come and go, you know, relationships come and go, lots of other things come and go, and that thing stays, and and that's the really high-leverage choice. That is, you know, so many people, what they want out of politics, say, is to get their person in charge, right? But their person won't stay in charge that long, and so, you know, we people who do analysis of political institutions, we say no. The fundamental choices is, is it a presidential system or a parliamentary system? Are there six-year terms or twelve-year terms? You know, uh, you know what? What are people allowed to say when they are uh, soliciting people to vote for them? Those are sort of the institutional features of the system that will last and have these bigger effects. And then individual politicians will adapt to the rules of those system. And you know, getting your person in charge isn't necessarily that big deal. And a sense, part of the system is how do you know who is your person? <laughs> and, and people gain that, basically, in order to win. And so, uh, you know, the system is is the fundamental choice.
0: Okay, I think we should stop. Uh, but before we stop, let me ask you, Let's. Um, do you feel like this, do you feel like we've solved this paradox, or do you think there was just no paradox to start with?
1: Uh, Well, quite often, paradoxes result from some sort of discrete framing, and then if you choose a more continuous framing, then you see a trade-off, and that's a common way we
0: economists resolve paradoxes. Good. That's a good ending. All right.